All right, Job 12 through 14. This is Job's response to Zophar. But, you know, I'm a Supreme Court case nerd and love to listen to my cases. And a very common thing in the Supreme Court world is you'll hear the name of a case and it'll, you know, Smith v. Jones. But they'll say Smith v. Jones and the consolidated cases. Because it turns out that Jones isn't the only person who has a problem with Smith. There are lots of other people with this same issue. That's why it made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the court is going to decide something that is not just for this case, but applies to a lot of similar cases. And that's what we're going to have here with this speech from Job. It is Job's longest speech. And it's his longest speech, I think, because this is the end of the first cycle of speeches. We've said that each of the three friends will speak. And then there will be another cycle where each of the three friends speak. And then there's a third cycle, slightly interrupted. And Job is responding to his friends and to God, and not just to Zophar. So technically, he's responding to Zophar, but you will hear references in what Job says when he quotes his friends' arguments that tells you that this is really a consolidated argument against the whole case that his friends have been making, against their entire uh, worldview. And that makes me laugh, just to say worldview. For those of you who've read Confederacy of Dunces, the idea of making a case against someone's worldview just makes me chuckle. The, uh, Christopher Ash, in the book that, that many of you are reading, does a great thing where he labels the worldview the system. And you can almost see like a trademark, a little TM up next to the system, because their way of viewing the world is what Ash is going to call the system. And that's what Job is going to respond against here. And then in doing that, he's also going to respond against them as counselors, as comforters. Job is disappointed in his friend's response, to say the least. And he's not just disappointed in what they've said, which is the system. He's disappointed in the way they've said it, that they would not listen to him. All the things that a comforter should do, they have failed to do. And what comes out of Job is pain and anger, frustration, And it's completely understandable. It's completely reasonable. Not just given what Job has experienced. He has his his grievances with God, so to speak. But he really has his grievances with the friends and the system, the worldview that they're espousing. And one of the things that we want to continue to think carefully about is what we've talked about for three weeks now. The difference between... The heart of faith, what is said out of a heart of faith, what a person believes when they are giving their confession of faith, I believe, when someone is speaking in that voice and when they are speaking out of the experience of pain, the experience of their circumstances, where they know the thing that they're saying is not precisely theologically accurate. That's not the genre that they're in. And we're 
we're okay with this. We know how to read books and how to read newspaper articles and how to read, uh, even listen to movies and things and, and appreciate that in this genre, you do certain things a certain way. If I am giving a, a, someone a fairy tale in a classroom, it's in, entirely appropriate that I would start with once upon a time and that the stuff I say can be fantastic and fanciful. But if I'm giving a, uh, a speech at somebody's installation into ministry, I probably shouldn't use the once upon a time and talk about the miracles they were able to perform that I've totally made up. We, we have tolerance for genre differences. And that's a little bit akin to what has to happen here. So what is the system? If you had to summarize Zophar's worldview, the friend's system, in just a sentence or two of how the world works, what would you say? Everybody gets good. If you behave well, you get what you deserve. Yes. Immediate retributive, 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 justice. One of those words. Same word, but however it's actually pronounced. Yeah, you reap what you sow, good and bad, always and immediately. And those are really critical words for their worldview. Always and immediately. And Job's, therefore, in the worldview, Job's suffering is evidence of Job's sin, period. Full stop. Could not be anything else. And that's the case all three friends have been making in increasing intensity. And when Job pushes back and says, I don't think so, what do his friends get? Just angrier. How dare you not think so? That's my worldview. You don't, you don't just say that I'm wrong about how the universe works. And what Job will say in this speech is going to be a rather lengthy response. So you guys are going to do a lot of reading today because I want to hear all the words um, of, of these chapters. Job's response is going to be in large part about the system, or at least that's where he's going to start. So who's got Job 12, 1 through 6? Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. Okay, so that part is, is clear enough, right? It is, as long as you understand that Job is speaking with bitter irony there at the beginning. The word he uses is for really important people and not just people who think they're important that's part of the word but it's really who other people think is important because hasn't that been the attitude of Zophar and the friends toward Job is that Job should think they're really important they're really wise they know what they're talking about they need to listen and Job says I know that you're that you are so important you are so what in fact when you die the wisdom of the world will be gone there just won't be any left. You will take it with you. But Job knows, and this is what he argues here, he knows their worldview. He knows the system every bit as well as they do. They have not taught him 
anything about this worldview. He knows exactly the system they're describing. And what he knows is that it doesn't work. And they're too inflated with pride and self-importance to admit that it doesn't work. And, and what Job says at the end of this first section is equivalent to look around the world. It's, it's the invitation of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Look around at what you see. Just use your own eyes. Is it this? Is it people reap what they sow always and immediately? Is that really what you see in this world? And what his friends have been arguing is, yes, that's exactly the way it is. And, and in the back of Job's mind is, well, then you're idiots. <laughs> because look around. This is not what you see. Not just in Job's case, but in lots of cases. Who's got uh, 7 through 12? But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living that living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Now this is a great example of why understanding genre is important. Because I read even commentaries this week, commentaries that are otherwise good, that don't carry over the sarcasm from the first part of the speech to this part of the speech. And so they interpret it in a totally different way. And it doesn't change the meaning in terms of what all of this is about for Christians, but it does cause you to miss out on what Job is doing here, what, what's happening in terms of the way he's speaking. And this is a parody of his friend's arguments. He's not saying, go sincerely, go ask the beast and they'll tell you. He's parroting his friends who have been telling him that the system is so obvious, even the stupid animals know it. Everything in the earth can figure this out, Job, except you. Everybody gets it. And Job says, oh, yes, this dumb animal gets it, and that dumb animal gets it. And everybody understands it, except for who? At the end of what Megan read, people who've lived, people who've looked at the world, people who've experienced reality. Those are the people who disagree with what you're saying, you dummies. Anybody who has lived long enough to experience firsthand or secondhand any undeserved pain and suffering or to see the wicked prosper for two seconds, realizes this system doesn't work. And yet the friends are saying, everybody gets it but you, Job. Well, no, what's wrong with you, Job? You just won't admit your sin. And so he is making fun of them here. He's come to learn something through his pain that his friends do not know. And that is that it is possible for the righteous to suffer. It is absolutely possible for the righteous to suffer, and it is not true that the wicked are always punished immediately. It's just not. And Job has learned this firsthand through his own pain, and his friends act as though that's not true. So now, now that we sort of get the tone of what Job's doing here, speaking to his friends sarcastically, 
doing a parody of his friend's argument, Job is continuing to respond in kind to what his friends have said. So look at what comes next, 13 through 25. Who's got that? With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waist clock on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Now, it's hard to see this in our Bibles because we tend to rely on looking for the indentation, and all of Job just about is indented because all of Job just about is a poem. But what was that Job just wrote? It, it's a hymn. It's a poem about the power and the majesty of God who just wrote a hymn or a poem on the same subject last chapter. So far. So far, just did this. So he he responds sarcastically to Zophar and et al. He responds with parity, parody to Zophar and consolidated Zophar in the consolidated cases. And now he does what Zophar does, which is he writes a better hymn about the power and majesty of God. He says, you think you get the power and majesty of God? I get it too. I'll write a better hymn, a more uh, expressive. Zophar's hymn was not wrong. It was inadequate. Job's hymn is more full. Now, it's still inadequate, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but it's more grand than Zophar's. It's more inclusive about God's power and might than Zophar's was. And and the point that Job adds that Zophar missed is that God is not so predictable as Zophar suggests. Uh, In our book club that many of us guys are in, our book this month was called This Tender Land. And the first section of the book is called God is a Tornado. And Job gets the tornado god concept way better than Zophar does. Because Zophar says, no, 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 God is formulaic. Let me show you the simple formula. And if you put these inputs on this side of the equation, you will get these outputs on that side of the equation every single time. And Job says, nope, not at all. God is inapprehensible. God is untamable, and far from being the God of natural, reliable order, this formulaic God that Zophar and the consolidated cases claim, he's a God of disasters. He's a God of unpredictability. And how in the world does that fit your system? 
And so Job has what Zophar has in his hymn. He has the, the power and wisdom of God, the majesty of God being praised. But what Job has that Zophar doesn't is how that aspect of God is the undoing of human wisdom and power. The result of God's wisdom and power in this world is that none of the formulas we build work. None of the plans. You know, a man makes his plans, right? The, we have all these ideas about how things ought to be, and sometimes in our pride, about how things will be. In the New Testament, you know, we're going to go into this village and we say we're going to make a prophet, and we're going to, and it's like, ah, good luck with all that. And it's not that you won't, it's that you might, and you might not. Job's hymn, Ash says, is a catalog of the undoing of human power and wisdom. God undoes the order of human power. And he did it, I don't know if you noticed, but first he did it with the leaders of the people there in verse 16. He starts with the leaders of the people and goes, that's from 16 to 21. And then starting in verse 22, he does it with nations. He says the peoples. So it's both the individual people, the leaders, the rulers, the kings who are going to make things happen. God is not constrained by their wisdom and power. And then it's the whole peoples, the whole nations. God is not constrained by their wisdom and power. And it's really humbling to, in your private devotional time, try to come to grips with that sentence in the first person. God is not constrained by my wisdom and power. That is what I know ought to happen. It's not a constraint for God. It doesn't limit his options. It, it doesn't steer him where he ought to be. That's n not the nature of God's wisdom and power. It's so far beyond ours that we certainly have the ability to reflect aspects of his. But the moment our understanding of God limits God, we better be real, real, real careful. Because the only thing that can limit God is what he said about himself. Not what conclusions we choose to draw from that. In short, Job says, this is Ash. I think Ash is really good in this chapter on this section. I think this may be the best chapter of, of his book. In short, says Job, your system is tame and cannot cope with the real God who is dangerous. What is that great line from the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy or somebody asks if Aslan is safe? Safe. He's not safe. But he's good. And you just get chills thinking about that because, because when you're sitting where Job sits and you ask which Job would choose? It's not an obvious answer, is it? When you're the one suffering in the hands of this good but not safe God, don't you at least think to yourself, I don't know, I might trade some goodness for some safety. 
I might trade some tornado God for some predictability. If you haven't said that, God be praised that you haven't suffered in a way that makes you say it. <laughs> you know? Because it's coming. And the beautiful part about Job in these chapters is he's wrestling with that honestly. He's not making heretical statements about God. He's wrestling honestly with that. If I had to choose between a God that was good or a God that was safe. Because what, what his friends are saying is that you get both. The God is so predictable. He's so formulaic. The, the, the law of cause and effect is so clear and so immediate that you get both. You're safe as long as you live in that law. If you never sin, you will never suffer. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Then in chapter 13, we get Job v. the system. <laughs> They've been trying to teach Job their worldview, their system, but Job knows it well. He doesn't need to be taught it. And he knows that it doesn't work. And the result of that then is that it does Job no good to continue to talk to his friends about this. He's going to have to take his case to God because his friends reject the premise. <laughs> they, they, they won't even have this discussion on honest terms. They won't even get where Solomon gets in Ecclesiastes to admit, well, I can't explain it, but this is the way it is. It's chaos out there. God is a tornado. And they won't even admit that the tornado God is real. And so he needs to talk to God. And he gives you a very important clue that this is where he's headed at the beginning of chapter 13. Do you have verse 3? 13.3? But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. And so he's still talking to Zophar here. He, he's got about... Um, he's got about 12 verses where he's transitioning from his discussion with Zophar and his friends to turning his attention to God. And he'll come back to this idea in verse 13 of taking the case directly to God. But he plants the seed here that that is his only possible avenue of success. The only way that he will be intellectually and spiritually satisfied from this discussion is not to talk to these friends it's to talk to God and on the one level let's say and be honest that that's that is ultimately true of any mental agony that only God can provide a satisfying answer to the human soul there's no shortcut to that and let it be said what does God desire of Christian brothers and sisters helping one another in agony if we are not helping people get toward that answer from God? If we are not finding out from them where they are with our eyes fixed on where they can be in Christ? Not a fully satisfying answer. We're not going to get that this side of glory. But the most satisfying answer that can be found is not in human interactions. It's in divine revelation. And when we're comforting people, what we are actually supposed to be doing is leading them to God, 
not leading them to God in trivial ways, not with Hallmark card expressions, not with nonsense, not even with absolute truth about God, like his friends have, that is irrelevant to the current situation. We listen to where people are. We understand what truths about God are relevant to their situation, and we use those to help draw people back toward God. That's what it is to comfort somebody. You do not comfort someone. And this is really hard for those of you who have that the people-pleaser kind of wiring. Um, those of us that are the opposite have a different problem. Equally challenging, but different. For those of you who have the people-pleaser wiring, though, this is really hard. Because you will deceive yourselves into thinking that you can comfort people by leading them not toward God. By affirming the false things they say. By directing them to non-Christ-like solutions. By, by being nice. You can comfort them. And you can't. Kindness is surely a part of comforting. But kindness is the fruit of the Spirit that relies on the Spirit. And the Spirit is a Spirit of truth and is always leading people toward truth. Always, always, always leading people toward truth. And there is no comfort, no real comfort that we provide to people that does not also lead them toward God. His friends think that they're the ones standing up for God. And so Job has some pretty direct words for that. Who's got 13, 9 through 11? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? They think they're standing up for God. And Job says, what if the tables get turned here? What, what if God comes to examine what you're doing? You think he's going to be pleased with this? And, and this is... A valuable lesson, not just about their arrogance and haughtiness, which I hope we see, but about people thinking that God needs us to misrepresent him in order to be defended. That if we told people about God as he actually is, God wouldn't look so good. So we got to spruce the place up a bit. And we got to, right, it's like we joked about staging houses. And you, yeah, okay, this looks better, but nobody could actually live in a house with this little furniture. Nobody could live in a house with this little stuff. But people will like it better. Oh my and, and when people are wrestling with the tornado God, with the chaos of God's work in his world, and we say, well, we can't tell people the truth about how God actually is. That's not very appealing. We'll defend God with some other description of God. And that doesn't help. It doesn't help because it's not true. And it, it really doesn't help because, again, if you're not leading people toward God, you're not comforting them. There is no real comfort that's going to be found in this stuff that we make up to try to make people feel better. We feel better because it's a much shorter conversation and it can be a much more optimistic conversation and we get away from their pain and suffering as quickly as is humanly possible and get to do the checkbox that we feel like we did our job. And to actually comfort them by the long, messy, inconclusive almost process of walking with them from pain to God, way harder, way harder. Um. So real quick, it's, it's relatively easy for me to 
like say affirm what you're saying here in Sunday school. Last week when I was with Hunter, my friend, he said a comment of, you know, my dad and granny, my granny are, you know, they're sailing a boat right now together. And I'm like, what do I do with that? You know, because I can't, all I did was just like smile, you know? Feels like that might've been the right answer to me because it's a good correction. I'm not saying, remember what's a, another part of what Zophar's friends did wrong. They applied truth indiscriminately. And so I'm not saying all truths must be applied at every moment in every situation. But if you don't have a plan to figure out where somebody is in their grief and pain and to, to do whatever God will enable you to do to get them from there to turning to Christ or back to Christ or clinging more closely to Christ, depending on where they are, then you're not actually engaged in comforting. You may be engaged in saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. And there are plenty of situations like you described where somebody says something that is theologically inaccurate, where the context, the relationship, the moment, where we are in the process of comforting would demand that you say something. It would demand that you say, you know, like you, I hope that's true. I do wonder, how are you so sure? And would you be that sure for yourself? You, you see what I did there? <laughs> and I don't do that particularly well. Like you said, it's very easy to do at a podium in a Sunday school class. I can tell you people how to be compassionate comforters. Uh, and mostly I do so that I don't have to. Hopefully if you comfort one another, then I'm off the hook for this really hard work. Because <laughs> this is really hard work. But there are also moments where saying nothing in that, in that example is the right thing to do or is a good thing to do. Uh, don't, don't hear me say we're, we're, uh, we're aggressively, we're not aggressive in our posture toward anyone. We are aggressively planning and executing how to get them from suffering to the arms of Christ. And sometimes what the execution of that aggressive plan looks like is weeping with those who weep right. yeah. and remaining in silence. Um, yeah? What if, I mean, the people pleaser in me struggles because I want to see that relationship continue, but what if, like, you saying that comforting thing, the relationship, you don't have an opportunity for it, it's done. One plants and another waters, and it is the Lord who gives the growth. And it's a great question because we're all wired so differently that there are different parts of this process where we will break down in either pride or self-guilt. And one of the guilt places for the people pleaser is, I didn't do enough. I finally did that pushing part that was so hard for me and it didn't work. And I would say that your view of God's work in history is too small. Your timeline is too short. It's the rare moment where you, the people pleaser person, have become rather arrogant and thinking that if it's to be, it must be me. And God has a much grander design for that person's life. And granted, people wired like me will use that as an excuse not to do it. 
I don't have to go help or comfort this person because God has so many people in their lives to help them with. Right? That's what I want to do. But again, it's just self-awareness. Knowing the way that you're wired is if you feel like this thing I really, really, really don't want to do and don't think is essential and don't think is necessary and don't think is good or healthy for that person or for me, the only reason I'm going to do it is because I think if I don't do it, God will never have the opportunity to speak that message to this person. Don't do it. You're doing the wrong thing. If, if, if God has given you that level of guilt and conviction that you shouldn't do this, and the only responsive answer is, yeah, but it'll never happen. Again, when you're wired the people-pleasing way, when you're wired the me way, you're having the other argument, which is, why do you assume? that he gave you this message at this time and this influence with this person, and yet somebody else is supposed to carry that water? Oh, okay, I see what you did there. Nothing. You did nothing. Right. Know, know thyself. <laughs> know thyself. Job knows what he has to do. He has to take his case to God. These guys are not helping at all. And Zophar has, despite his best efforts, has not been successful in scaring Job away from this idea of being in court with God. And it's dangerous. Job knows this is dangerous. He admits in verse 13, he's admitted in other chapters, given what Job has said about God's unpredictability, you really do take your life in your hands when you engage at this level with God, don't you? And, and even just think about that emotionally for a minute. Set aside the, he actually is the judge of the living and the dead. He can poof you whenever he wants to poof you. But just take the emotional part for a minute. It's emotionally dangerous to engage with God this way. Because the answer or God's response or what he does might hurt you. He's not safe. He's not tame. His outcomes are the best we could ever have. They are so far from what we could accomplish ourselves that it's not even a discussion of the outcome. But the outcome is out there. It's way far away in history. The thing in front of me tomorrow could really, really hurt. And so to engage with God at this level that Job is talking about is dangerous. So why does he do it? And this is important for the case I'm trying to make with you that Job is a good man. He's not, he's not a sinner in rebellion against God in these speeches that he has against his friends. Derek Thomas says about this courtroom thing, Job's intention is not to bring an indictment against God. It's to hear what indictment God has against him. He wants to stand before God, hear that indictment, and either be convinced that he is a sinner deserving of this, which Job thinks is unlikely, or what Job thinks is the more likely scenario, clear his name. Vindicate his faith in God. And what is this whole book about? Remember the discussion between God and Satan? What is this whole book about? Vindicating Job's faith in God. 
That's the whole thing. That's why all this happened. Satan said that faith can't be vindicated. And God said, yes, it can. And God does all of this stuff to Job through Satan. And his friends are giving him all this nonsense. And Job says, what I need is a day in court with God. So God can present his indictment. I can prove my innocence and I can be vindicated. And God is in the background saying, yes, that is exactly what you need. And his friends are saying, no, you shouldn't come within 10 million miles of that. It will kill you. And Job is right. And when you're in this level of suffering, and you're right, and your friends are telling you there's no way you're right, and the reason they give is so stupid as you always reap what you sow immediately. And you're like, what? Have you lived for five minutes? Have you paid attention to anyone else's life ever? Can you see why Job would start to get righteously angry? And that's why Job speaks with righteous anger. He has every right to do so. What God will do, ultimately, is the safest place in life. There is nowhere safer than where God will bring us ultimately in Christ. The route to that place is filled with danger. Danger and pain. They mark the path from here to glory in Christ. Suffering marks the path from here to Christ. What are we going to hear about Christ from the book of Isaiah? Thousands of years before Christ came, what did Isaiah use to characterize the Christ? Suffering. The suffering servant. That path will be marked with suffering. Derek Thomas says, Job will appear before God to clear his name because he is confident, not in himself, but in God. Job may not understand providence, but he trusts in the God of providence. And I think that may be the most profound lesson from the entire book of Job. <laughs> like, I know we're way chapters early. We got a long way to go, but I think this is it. And we're going to keep coming back to it. We will not understand providence. It's the wrong question. Why is this happening is the wrong question. Unless we have first said do we trust the God of providence? If we trust the God of providence, then we will be satisfied with the answers that God gives us as to why this is happening, whether that answer is intellectually 20% satisfying or 100% satisfying. We get sometimes that chance to see exactly why God did something. But many, many times we don't. That percentage goes way below 100 but we will never be satisfied with any of those answers if we don't first trust the God of providence. So I see that Job makes the case for fearing God. I see that Job makes the case for loving God. But the only thing Job makes the case for in trusting God is his ultimate salvation. In the meantime, he can't trust anything about God because God is this tornado. So the trust is very long-term. Yes, asterisks, and the asterisk is 
How should a child interpret a spanking? A lot of it is the long term. I know that the place my parents are trying to bring me to with their method and approach to parenting is a good place. But isn't there something more than that? Isn't there some level of even in the short term, though it makes no sense to me at all, this dangerous and painful tornado god thing is itself for my good? It's only the fact that we have understanding that the last one, I understand how God could use all of those things to bring that last trustworthy state. But the trust has to come all the way back. You cannot trust what will happen in providence. But you still need to be able to trust the God of providence, whatever may come. Not just ultimately, but even moment to moment. It's the... the well, you're trusting that he's going to do, he's going he's gonna to use it for good, but you can't trust any outcome. Depends on what you mean by trust. You cannot claim to know any outcome before it occurs. And if you're saying what Job's saying, which is it isn't a formulaic thing, then it isn't a formulaic thing with good either. It isn't we did this and God blessed us with this good result. No, no, no not necessarily. Not for certain. But certainly, the calculus needs to be made. Just like the calculus needs to be made on the negative side. Remember, the way we're harping on Job is because God told us at the very beginning that Job's suffering is not because of his sin. But everything we're hearing in Isaiah is that their suffering is because of their sin. And they should look at that suffering and use it as a, a prod to stop sinning. Both are true. What Job is rejecting is the insistence that it is so clear and formulaic in this life that one can reason from one to the other always. But we can reason from one to the other sometimes. I mean, may or may not have to edit this out of the video, but monkeypox. Why is monkeypox spreading in the United States? Sinful sexual activity. That's it. So somebody who won't look at that consequence and reason back to God's discipline on sin is blinding their eyes to what happens in the world. Um, my father-in-law yesterday told me, you know, he, he runs the uh, homeless shelter in Gainesville and they provide lunches every day and then some number of beds for homeless people to sleep at night. And... There was a transfer of wealth in the past few weeks where a church that I don't think highly of whatsoever or what they're doing gave a million dollars to his ministry. And I think, God is good. <laughs> like that's, they will use it so much better than what it was going to be used for in this other context. Are he and his team allowed to look at the work they're doing and to look at that blessing and make a connection? I hope so. I hope they do. But you're absolutely right. It's the, if this is maybe part of the problem is the definition of the word trust. I went, I went through this in the business world several years back where I was on a leadership team with somebody who had real trust issues <laughs> with, with everyone. And 
our, our CEO would kind of press on him and say, hey, that, that sounds like a trust issue. It sounds like you don't trust so-and-so. And his answer would be, oh, no, no, no. It's not, I trust them. I trust them to do good work. I trust that, that they will not lie and cheat and steal. I trust. And he said, everything you're describing is results. Trust is about a person. Do you trust that no matter what the person does, they have the company's best interests at heart? Do you trust that whatever the person does, they want what's good for you and for us? That's trust. And so when we say, do we trust the tornado god? <laughs> uh, you're, we're absolutely right if we say, well, we cannot trust that what comes next will be fun or enjoyable or encouraging or uplifting. But can we trust that it will be with our best interest in heart? Yeah. Trusting the God of providence, absolutely. Trusting the next step of providence, I don't even know what that is. I'm watching this movie on this Thai rescue of these 13 kids out of this cave, and all these people over there are praying to false gods. Yeah. They're praying, praying to idols. Yeah. Nobody over there is calling on the name of the Lord. Only in the documentary. I watched it too. It's a brilliant documentary. But how many hundreds of thousands of people across the world were praying for those kids? I was. I remember it vividly. They didn't put it in the documentary. I agree. And the fault, the prayers to false gods could interpret that they're false gods and lighting those candles. I get it. I absolutely get it. God chooses to answer that and not get any credit and not get any glory and not get any whatever. But you're painting with a broad brush. I know. Because I did glorify God. I glorified God even at the end of the documentary, remembering living through that. I'm sure you did. God will get his glory. We don't have to worry about God getting his glory. He will get his glory one day from every knee that will bow and every tongue that will confess. But if God himself is content with the glory he receives from his people, the church, for this period of thousands of years of history, who are we to say, you're doing it wrong, God? Uh, you know, if I were in charge, God, you would get more glory. That's exactly what we say. If I, I mean, I, I said it this week. I pretty much literally said that this week. God, if I were in charge, oh, your world. It would be so much better for you. Why don't, why don't you just let me take control? Never mind how much better it would be for me. That's not my concern. The rocks are crying out. I mean, the rocks. They're, they're crying out to God. Yeah. It's all he needs. He doesn't need us. Job, Job recognizes that while... Job's friends refuse to acknowledge that God is dangerous. And they say you should trust God because there is no danger here. And that argument just won't fly, again, for anybody who has looked at life for five seconds. And Job says, because my argument is that God is dangerous, yet I trust him anyway, that I should go before him and plead my case. Because if I plead my case... Even to a dangerous God, it will be for my good. And so far, you've lost your mind. You're going to get blowed up. And, and Job kind of says, maybe. And it will be for my good. It will be for my good. Because again, what's worse? Having that encounter with a good God 
who will bring about an ultimate good through chaotic and dangerous means. They're not actually chaotic, but we're using that word for shorthand. Through chaotic and dangerous means. But you are with that God. You're in the presence of that God, beloved by that God, even as he chastises you, or even as you experience the chastisement of a wicked generation. What's, what's worse, that, because it's filled with a bunch of sadness and unpleasant stuff, or going through the same sadness, unpleasant stuff, getting blowed up, and not believing that God has any good plan for you whatsoever. And that's how most of the world lives. That opens their eyes to even think about it. It's a dangerous place to be, this Christian life. Not actually dangerous, but experientially dangerous. Last questions or thoughts? And we'll stop there. Uh, I think I know the answer, but like, so we have to say we've been zoomed, we've been on the kind of zoomed out part because we've got this view of God saying, and this is Job is blameless in this, and yet this awful experience and suffering is still what he should become more like like even though he didn't deserve it in the sense of he didn't do something wrong that the sin is coming upon him still all of this pain and suffering is what he needed it's a great segue to the sermon because god is not content and neither should we be to move us merely from unbelief to belief God is always looking at the next level of Christ-likeness. Always looking at the next level of Christ-likeness. Making us more and more like him until the day of his coming. In, in a way that the comparison that the New Testament uses, which mind-blowing. You know, remember, this is Christ who is the, the, the nature of God reflected perfectly in human form. I mean, this is just, wow. And we are going to be like him. In what way? And then there's just this, yeah. Huh? Yep, like him. And so God is not satisfied that we stop moving from unbelief to belief. Job is solidly in the belief camp. It comes out again and again and again. He's a good man. He sacrifices for his children. He gets sin. He, he, he gets trusting God, even in this chaos. But Job has more to grow. Job has higher levels of Christ-likeness to attain, and so do we. And so the moment that we say, well, God, I would understand you doing this to an unbeliever to bring them to faith, but look how good I was. And I get this? And God says, you're looking at other people for comparison. You know what you should be looking to for comparison? Jesus. The man of sorrows. Look at Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, he needed a few more things to increase a few, <laughs> right? We're done. Thank you.